She's a veteran of the United States Navy. She recently retired after a 20-plus year career with the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Department during her career in law enforcement. She experienced lots of trauma, lots of violence. She's here to talk about her career, the impact on her, and what she's doing about it today. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Get rid of business cards forever. Instantly transfer all of your contact information, including all important websites, social media links, links to podcasts, video sites, etc. Quickly, easily, and inexpensively. Get more details online at letpops.com. All of your important information transferred just by clicking your phones together. Get more details online at letpops.com. That's letpops.com. Calling us from Florida, we have recently retired Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Deputy Donna Michaels on the phone. We're going to refer to her also as DA. Donna, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We've been working on this a while. And to be totally honest, Donna was still employed. And we didn't want to do this until she was officially retired. Because we've been talking about her career. And you're also a United States Navy veteran. And in addition to your service in the Sheriff's Department. Thank you for both. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. So now that you're retired, you can speak freely. <laughs> yes, I can. That's Unfiltered. <laughs> well, the reason I say Donna, it's her, her name, Donna Michaels, but she authored a book called Courageously Broken under the name D.A. Michaels. So her website is CourageouslyBroken.com. Very quickly, Donna, why did you use D.A. Michaels instead of just Donna Michaels when you wrote the book? Great question. I'm glad you asked. So when getting ready to uh, to publish, uh, I thought at the last minute, you know, I wonder if there's any other authors with my name. So I decided to uh, Google it, and it turns out there is another author with uh, the name Donna Michaels, and she writes hot, steamy romance books about her flings with uh, commandos and Navy SEALs. And I thought, well, this isn't good, considering that I served in the Navy alongside Navy SEALs, and several chapters of my book are about my time working with Navy SEALs. So I thought, this this is not good. I, I certainly don't want to be uh, confused with her. So I decided to change it to my initials, and I just went with D.A. Michaels. I'm so glad you did, because the thoughts of chapters in the book about hot, steamy nether regions and whatnot is more than I can handle <laughs> at this point. Right, exactly. It's more than I wanted to think about. These guys are my brothers. I can't even picture that. And your book is is basically, it's called Courageously Broken. We'll talk more about it because it also talks about your career in the military and your career in law enforcement. Now, you just recently retired from the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Department. By the way, Orange County is the area where Orlando is located. So that was 20 years there, right? That's correct. 21, actually. I did almost a year as a reserve before I got hired on. And thank you. And if you're like me, and most 
cops I know, you have a variety of physical scars from surgeries and whatnot and injuries, line of duty. We all get dinged up over the years. Those are scars you can see. There are other scars that people don't see so so readily that many of us contend with after our years of police work. And that's been a case for you as well, hasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Both cases, these physical surgeries, the physical scars, and mental slash emotional scars. And I hate that terminology, mental slash emotional. Right, yeah, it's because it's got, and that's kind of like what my mission's all about. It's got such a stigma to it. And that stigma is what, in my opinion, and, and a lot of people's opinion, is stops so many of our of our bravest from getting the much deserved and needed help they need. They they let that stigma stop them, and they shouldn't. Part of my thing, Donna, is the the terminology post traumatic stress disorder. I get why the medical community calls it that but i take great exception to the disorder part of it and i refer to it more as a post-traumatic stress injury or post-traumatic stress because if you do a career in law enforcement the things you see the things you encounter the violence that is perpetuated on other people and sometimes ourselves it's a natural reaction to all that stuff that's correct and um during my time at the sheriff's office i actually served on the team, which is the Critical Incident Stress Management Team. And when we went through that course and got certified, I learned that there actually is a difference between PTS and PTSD. And I understand exactly what you mean. I think the injury is a, is a great way to put it. But in the legality definitions of it, PTS can happen to anybody who experiences a traumatic event and they get the symptoms. But if a lot for many people, the symptoms don't last beyond six months. They eventually, you know, just the nightmares go away and they kind of, you know, resume normal, um, according to the experts. However, if the nightmares and the flashbacks and the symptoms continue beyond six months or a year, that is when they can be legally and officially diagnosed with PTSD because it's more likely to be permanent scars that will not heal. I get it. I have I have no disagreement with you whatsoever. I just... I found for me and many of my guests, when we treat it like an orthopedic injury, meaning you go to the surgeon, you go to the doctor, you you might have to go through surgery, other medical procedures, you do the physical therapy afterwards, no one expects you to be the same, let's use a shoulder as an example, I know you've had shoulder surgery, so have I. No one expects that surgery to be the way, sort of be the way it was before the incident, so we should treat our brain that way, meaning there's certain things I have to do to be okay. I'm not going to be like I was when I was 18 or 19 ever again. And that's understandable. Yeah, they they call it MMI, maximum medical improvement. That's as good as you're going to get. If this is as good as I'm going to get, I'm in bad shape, Donna. I'm going to tell you that right now. (laughs) But I'll take it. Yeah, I think we all can really do that after a certain age. If this is as good as life gets, you know what? The truth is I'm doing much better than many, many other people. I wanted to talk a little bit about your career when did you go into the navy how old were you i was 18 years old and you were very young when i was 18 i thought i knew it all but i really i look back i didn't know much at all no no i think we all all thought that i just knew that i needed i i just knew that i needed to leave home and see the world that that's all i cared about i wanted to get away and see the world and figure it out um, through life experience. I didn't want to learn about the world through a book. And I definitely wanted to get away from, I came, I came from a, I won't say abusive 
home, but I definitely came from a dysfunctional home. And it was toxic, and I needed to get out of there. So the joining the Navy was my way of, of getting my independence as soon as possible and seeing the world. And it, and it did just that for me. And I think that's a great idea. I had the opportunity to do that. My dad was career Navy. I should have done it. I was an idiot. I didn't. Instead, I stuck around the house and was a thorn in the side of my parents and did odd jobs for entry-level wages. Mm-hmm. And learned nothing, yep. you know, until I was old enough to become a cop. I really learned nothing. Pumping gas, driving taxi cabs. I actually drove a Mr. Softy ice cream truck in Norfolk, Virginia, of all things. <laughs> that was not a fun you job. You were the ice cream man. I was the ice cream man. I was. Everybody loved to see me. Right, yeah, the kids are chasing you down the street. <laughs> it was not a good preparation for my career in law enforcement. When you were in the Navy, what did you do? What was your assignment? I was a yeoman, which is an administrative role, um, which we yeomans back in my day, I think things have changed from what I've heard, but back in my day, we were always assigned uh, directly to the uh, commanding officer of unit or base, and we handled um, not as much personnel records, but awards, uh, discipline, anytime somebody got in trouble, we prepared their paperwork for, you know, what they called captain's mask or non-judicial punishment. Things of that nature. It was it was it was all of the administrative work that the the, the captain needed done for his, his unit or base. And I thank you for that. We're going to talk more about Donna's career in the Navy and her transition to law enforcement and her law enforcement career. What she's doing today. Fascinating conversation. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today podcast network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Donna D.A. Michaels on the Law Enforcement Today show, United States Navy veteran, also recently retired Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Department deputy and author of the book, Courageously Broken. Her website is courageouslybroken.com. Before we end the breakdown, very quickly, you're talking about your career in the military. You're a yeoman. You're doing a lot of administrative stuff, but you had some overlap with special forces. That's correct. I was um, blessed, truly blessed when I got orders to my second duty station. My first duty station was in the Azores. It was only a 15-month tour. I don't really have a lot of good things to say about it, um, which I explain in the book. But my second duty station was with the uh, Navy SEALs in Panama, and it was just after um, Operation Just Cause when the U.S. went down and took out Noriega. And we were in the the thick of the drug wars and taking down cartels um, throughout Central and South America. And it was honestly the best years of my life. I mean, the, the the friendships and the relationships I built there have lasted 30 years, and, and we all 
continue to be family. And I, I credit that community, the, the Naval Special Warfare, with honestly building me into who I am today and teaching me that never quit mentality that definitely helped me throughout my law enforcement career. No, no, doubt, no doubt about it. And when you left the military, I went into law enforcement, why Florida? Why Orange County? Um, well, when I first got out of the military in uh, off active duty in 93, I, I lived for a very brief period of time in Atlanta, Georgia. And the uh, dysfunctional family that I talked about earlier kind of had escalated. So my mom ultimately left my dad and moved to Florida to be um, to start over again. And I ended up following her here. And we both actually got our real estate license and went into the timeshare industry for about seven years. I became a cop by fluke. I It was the last thing on my radar that I ever thought I would be when I grew up. But I, I made a friend at the sheriff's office, and he worked on me for a while and convinced me I'd, I'd, I'd make a good cop. And um, I did a few ride-alongs, fell in love with it, realized that it wasn't at all what I thought it was. Uh, it's not what Hollywood and, and everybody thinks it is or TV makes it out to be. It's, there's so, so much more to it, as you, as you know. Um, and so, you know, the rest is history. That was in uh, 1999, and I got sworn in in 2000, and like you said, I just retired. Well, thank you for your service there as well. And I, I got to confess, you know, being a city cop, I, I always had this image on mind that the sheriff's department had it easy. And I'm confessing right now, I know in your case, and I know that's not the case in just about every area. And by the way, Orange County is no joke. It's a highly populated county. For those who don't know, there's about 1.3 million population in Orange County, Florida. So, And that doesn't count tourists. Yeah, and that, that means you wind up dealing with everything. Right. All the violence, yeah. all the trauma, all the accidents, all that stuff, it's nonstop for you guys, just like it was for us. Oh, yeah, it's it's nonstop. There's calls always holding, always holding, meaning people are waiting on a, on a deputy to respond for anything from a burglary that's over with to anything that's over with. It, even if it was a robbery that happened last night or hours ago, it's, it's going to hold because everything, as you know, that's happening right now or that's in progress um, gets you know, first priority. So yeah, we, we, we don't stop when they're 12 hour shifts and they don't, they don't stop. And unfortunately you wound up encountering some very traumatic incidents that, and this is something a lot of people really get confused about. They think that trauma has to be inflicted upon the person. It doesn't. You wound up encountering a lot of those things. And I'll be honest with you, Donna, where I worked in Baltimore, Murders were almost a daily thing. People being shot was a daily thing, and extreme violence was a daily thing. But some of the things that you deal with in Florida that are very specific to you, we never really encountered. And I'm talking, for example, the drowning of children in swimming pools. Yeah, and children left in hot cars. Two huge problems here in Florida. And I'll be honest with you, I had a really difficult time. I still do. Even talking about the things I handle with crimes or negligence against children where they're harmed or killed. Oh, yeah. No, there's, I, don't, I don't care how long you're on the job or how seasoned you get. The death of a child is never, is never easy, ever. It, it takes a toll on all of us. And I, I, my first one, I wasn't a parent yet. And, you know, I didn't know how to react to it because it was my first. Um, and I was 
in autopilot, you know, as, as I was trained to be. And I remember being at the hospital when the, when the child was pronounced and the doctor came out to tell the parents. I remember, you know, the doctor being emotional, the nurse being emotional, you know, everybody was emotional. I was still in, you know, like work mode. And I remember thinking, why are they crying? They see this stuff all the time. I don't understand. That's because I had, you know, I had obviously not processed it yet. I was still in, in work mode. And it didn't hit me until about 24 hours later. It was the next day. And I just, suddenly it hit me and I was on the floor, you know, bawling my eyes out. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? You know, that was yesterday. Why am I crying today? And and my mom, who had worked um, in a medical examiner's office, or the morgue, as they say, um, for 17 years, and had dealt with, you know, families in grief on a daily basis, you know, I called her and I'm like, Mom, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I just now crying? Everybody was crying yesterday and I'm, I'm crying today. She said, everybody's different. Don't judge yourself. You know, some people, you know, just process at their own speed. She goes, at least you're processing. She goes, I would be worried if you weren't. And so she, she was a huge help to me. And whenever I did have those kind of traumatic calls, I, I knew I could count on my mom to, to kind of, you know, help me out. It helped me in the moment. But as you know, as the years went by, I still compartmentalized. I still took certain things and kind of stuffed them in the box and, and kept going forward thinking, well, this is what I signed up to do. This is my job, you know, and you, you just, and people don't realize we see those calls and we don't get to go home, you know. Like, the, the, let's say you're a, a clerk at a bank and it gets robbed. You know, they close the bank for the rest of the day. They send their employees home. Everybody's offered counseling. We don't get to do that. We literally go to the very next call. And the next call could be literally a parent who's calling the police because their 10-year-old won't get out of bed to go to school. I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm not. We get those calls a lot. And, and you know, normally it's not a big deal. You tell little Johnny, get up, go to school. But if you've just come from a, a devastating traumatic call and now you get this call, are you probably going to be a little annoyed with, you know, the mom for, for calling you over something like this instead of just doing her job and being a parent? Yeah, probably. And those are often times where we get accused of being rude or, you know, um, not having a heart or cold hearted. Yeah, callous, unprofessional. What all, we just came from. I got called that so many times, Donna. I, I became immune to it after a while. Like, yeah, this is how I am. And the truth is, yeah, my wife Stephanie says every now and then she knows how I am. She goes, I got to keep you away from people because you don't have a filter. And when I get that that same sort of like response, it it comes out and it doesn't stop. Oh, sure. Yeah, when you get triggered, it's like a volcano erupting. Oh, yeah. And once it blows, it blows. You can put a lid on it. <laughs> once I start the finger pointing and I start with things like, and another thing, and another thing, oh, my goodness, I am in so much trouble. We're talking with Donna D.A. Michaels, a United States Navy veteran, also recently retired from the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Department, author of the book, Courageously Broken. Her website is CourageouslyBroken.com. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We have so much more to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today radio show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T radio show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T radio show podcast. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Hope to see you online soon.
Return conversation with Donna D.A. Michaels. I say that because that is her pen name, her book, Courageously Broken. She's a United States Navy veteran, also recently retired Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Deputy. Donna, before we went to break, we're talking about the traumas you went through and early in your career, you had a young child that died. How did that happen? It was really tragic and absolutely no fault of the parents whatsoever. I, you know, I, I always want people to know that, you know, how could a parent let that happen? People don't really, drownings are not loud and, and, and like they are in the movies. They're actually very quiet and happen very quickly. What happened was it was a, a family from out of the country, from a part of the world where they don't have swimming pools, uh, stays cold most of the year. So needless to say, renting a vacation home with a swimming pool was a novelty. That particular day, they had skipped the theme parks. They had had a family barbecue. Um, kids had swam in the pool. There were three children, um, two girls and a little boy who was, the little boy was two years old. So that evening after dinner, you know, the family went through their normal routine, tucked the children in bed. Mom decided to take a hot bath. Dad had to run to the store real quick to grab something. And when dad came back, he did a quick bed check, um, like most parents do when they have young children, and he noticed the two-year-old wasn't in his bed. Um, and then he noticed the sliding glass door to the pool area was open. Um, they didn't realize the two-year-old knew how to open the door, and they weren't aware of using the you know upper latches that are often on sliding glass doors that we know about here in Florida. So um, unfortunately, the little boy being that age, had a blast in the pool that day and decided he wanted to go back out there. And he went into the pool and unfortunately couldn't swim. And dad dove in, got him, got him out. You know, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, mom is the one that called 911. And my partner and I got there pretty much simultaneously uh, before fire rescue did. And we did CPR on the boy. And they, when fire rescue got there, it was one of the few times in my career where they didn't even assess them. They literally grabbed him and they ran as fast as they could to the ambulance and they worked him as they drove to the hospital. And unfortunately, after they did everything they possibly could, it was just, it was too late. He, he couldn't be revived and he didn't make it. And that was um, heartbreaking for the parents because, you know, it, it was literally, it could have happened to anybody, especially if you're not from Florida and you don't know you know, how our sliding glass doors work and how easy it is for a two-year-old to open them. The other thing is, and I'm not quite sure how to describe this. I I know you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You get a a personal investment in trying to save this child's life. And it's a very powerless feeling when you can't. And we walk around, somehow we're taught, we're trained that you can do anything and never quit, never give up the fight, stay in the fight no matter what. If you're losing badly, you stay in the fight, you don't quit, you never give up. And that's the mentality we take in law enforcement, especially when you're trying to save someone that's that's tragically injured. And that had to be horrible for you. Oh, it was. And like I said, I mean, I was a rookie. I was at this, I hadn't been on the job a couple months when this happened. And I um, didn't even know how to process it. They didn't teach us that in the academy. Uh, PTSD wasn't a thing for first responders or even, you know, I don't even know if we had that title yet. I'm sure it was in the veteran community, but not in ours. And, yeah, I had, and I, because I wasn't a parent yet, it was, it was just a very foreign feeling. And the old timers, 
were kind of like, you know, yeah, it sucks. That's what we do. And that was it. That was your pep up conversation. It sucks. Move on. Pick, you know, and, you know, I, I wrote, I wrote about it in my book going through all this. And I thought about what is the difference between our current generation and past generations? And, um, I am not condoning this. So let me make that very clear. But in the old days, you know, the cops and the firefighters, you know, they had their own bars practically where they, where they went and they told stories and they drank and in a way that was self-medicating and they were doing their own therapy because they had that brotherhood and they had that camaraderie and they talked things out. And I talked to a World War II veteran recently and he, and we talked about it and he says, well, you know, back in the old days after World War II, they didn't come home on a plane. They all rode the ships back home, and they sat together, and they talked about their war stories, and they, 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 it's almost as if they didn't realize it, but they were giving each other therapy as they, as they talked about everything they had been through. But now in, in, in our current, you know, way our society is, you know, if our soldiers get injured, they're on a plane as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, they're getting treated for their physical wounds, and the mental wounds, they they get addressed later on if they get addressed. In in our law enforcement and first responder community, you know, if you get a DUI, again, not condoning it, but if you are going through marital problems on top of the PTSD, on top of, you know, your kids, a teenager giving you a hard time, just the everyday life that everybody else goes through, you know, if we go out and we have a few drinks with our friends and get into trouble, be it a bar fight or drinking and driving, we not only lose our job, we're blasted all over the media because we were a cop or a firefighter and we did this. Joe Blow the plumber doesn't make news. He just goes to jail and his life goes on. And it sucks regardless, but we aren't properly processing our issues, which is why we have to bring so much more attention to this. Again, I'm not condoning self-medicating. I'm no, I agree. What we used to do, Donna, was after really bad situations, really bad shifts, we get a case of beer or two and we go to a parking lot and we drink beer and we talk. And that's what we did. And sometimes our commanding officers would say, here, here, I'll buy. And you go. There was very much the mentality of suck it up, buttercup. You have a job to do. And my wife and I, we love to watch TV and we're watching a series, Bosch, right now. And there's this thing that happens in television where a cop goes through something really, really bad. They go to the commanding officer or the commanding officer comes and says, hey, Take as much time off as you need and then come back when you're better. That never happened. It was go no, to the next call. That's not, that's not reality. No, not at all. It, sh- it should be, but it's not. <laughs> I don't know, if you walked in after that incident and you said to your commanding officer, by the way, I'm having a hard time dealing with this and, and uh, sorting it out and getting the better spot, your probationary officer, chances are you're fired. You're done. You're over. Yeah, you're at will. Yeah, or here, we're going to send you for a fitness for duty evaluation with a psychiatrist. And if a psychiatrist thinks you're unstable, that's it. Your career's over, just like that. So that's added pressure on there. And here you are. You're a rookie. You're new. You're trying to process this. It, the first day was not a big deal, but the next day it kind of hit you like a ton of bricks, didn't it? Right. And what? Um, and then not long after that was 9-11. Uh, I still can't so, deal with that. A law enforcement, you, you know this, law enforcement as we know it, changed overnight yeah you know dramatically and then we were bombarded with you know fbi intel bulletin one after the other multiple sometimes and being in a place like orlando which is a huge tourist area 
you can imagine we were inundated with all kinds of stuff, just like New York or any other big city, right? Right. And so, yeah, the drowning just became just another call. I mean, in reality, it wasn't, but at the time, it was. And as the years went by, you know, there were car crashes, there were suicides, there were murder-suicides, there were all kinds of horrific calls. And you just chalked it up as, unfortunately, this is part of the job, and you keep going. And you just, you take each trauma call, and you box it up, and you lock it in that little box, you know, in the back of your brain, and you locking them up, right. how to put it, you know, suppressing them. One one of the things that we uh, do is I think we've gotten very, very much better at dealing with what they call the critical incidents, the really big stuff, where we seem to be falling down for our first responders, and that includes our law enforcement officers, our dispatchers, our corrections officers, our firefighters, our EMTs, is a daily grind that repeated exposure to violence and trauma, whether it be accidental or acts of criminal violence, has a profound effect on the quality of life for these people. We're turning our conversation with Donna Michaels. We're going to talk about another incident, how it affected her, and how it impacted her afterwards, and what she does with her life today. If you haven't done so already, please download our app. It's 100% free. we got versions for your Android and iPhone devices, 100% free. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Be sure to get yours today. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to win great prizes in awesome contests? Who wouldn't want that? It's easy. Just sign up and subscribe for the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Donna D.A. Michaels on the Law Enforcement Today Show. He's a United States Navy veteran, also recently retired from the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Department. Before we end break, Donna, we're talking about your career. Early on, you were a rookie, a drowning death of a two-year-old boy, very tragic, had a big impact on you. Then you had 9-11 right after that. Uh, and then years of seeing all these things that we see in our police career. And then you had another call, which happens quite often, and I'm no expert in that part of Florida, another drowning call, correct? That's correct. Can you talk yes. about that one? Yeah, um, it was June 1st, 2017. I was assigned regularly as an SRO, Escal Resource Officer, and um, I had become a parent by this point, and being an SRO worked better for me personally. So uh, it was the first day of summer. School had let out the, the previous day. And I was working patrol, as we all do, and we got that call, and I responded to it. I wasn't far away at all. And it was another two-year-old drowning. And I got there. I was the third one on the scene within a very short period of time. And like I said, because I was already pretty close to the other two or closer. One went straight to the back to where the baby was. The baby was um, being worked on by a, a neighbor who was a witness, who actually is the one who called 911. The, um, the father was out there um, freaking out, uh, obviously. 
and the mom had reached for a knife and was suicidal in the kitchen. And the second deputy through the door um, went to mom and was, and I basically was followed right behind him. Um, he went hands-on first, and I was going to go hands-on to help him because she had a knife. And he managed to get the knife away from her and just said, go, go, go. So I ran out to the back, and I pulled dad away from the other deputy and the neighbor who were do, already doing CPR. And my job was to keep dad from um, interfering with them trying to revive the baby. Um, I turned the father around because, in my opinion, no parent should ever have to watch their child in that moment. It's, it's, it's horrific to watch. If CPR is done correctly, it is not easy to watch. And um, so I turned the dad around, and I had his back to the baby, and I was just trying to get him to focus on me and answer questions and, you know, like trying to estimate how long was the baby in the pool, who was the last one to see him, you know, just get him, get him talking to me. Meanwhile, I'm watching over his shoulder um, what's going on. And I could tell by what I saw that it, we were too late. The baby had been in the pool too long, of course. I'm not a doctor, but when you do this job long enough, you, you just know. You can tell. So, um, I'm sorry? I said, you can tell. You can tell. Yeah, exactly. But, that, but, you, but like you said, you don't quit. You keep going no matter what. That's because we're, you know, we're there to do everything we can to try and, and bring that child back. So that call hit me really, really hard because... A, I was a parent, so I could I could relate now to as a parent what it feels like. Number two, it was like taking the first call that we talked about a moment ago and a suicide call that I had worked where uh, a 13 year old had hung herself and we ended up in a gun standoff with mom who became suicidal with a gun, and that was an extremely extremely hard call a few years before that. So it was like I taking both of those calls and kind of wrapped them into one for me in my head. And at the same time, I was going through my own personal struggles. My mom was in ICU. I was going through a breakup um, who was just toxic, and I was trying to get him out of my life. And, and while it wasn't emotional for me, it was still a lot of stress that was on my plate. Um, my dog had died two, di- two days before this incident. And so I literally got punched in the face like three times in a seven-day period with overwhelming things. And that day, that that particular day was the straw that broke the camel's back in my brain. And it was like someone took C4 explosives, put them on my little black box, and blew that box up, and every trauma that I had ever suppressed was now flying through my brain. I had every face that I had seen dying. I had every parent that had cried. I, I mean, they just wouldn't go away. It was all of them. And I was broken. And that's kind of where part of my title comes from, being broken. I felt absolutely broken. I had never suffered from depression. I had always been considered resilient and strong. I'd been through so much, blah, blah, blah. But this time, I was on the floor, literally, and I could not get up. I, it was about seven days after the drowning that I, I did make one phone call, and I was hysterically sobbing explaining that I, I couldn't snap out of it. And I was told to go to an urgent care and see a doctor. They would help me give something to help me sleep. And because I was, I've gotten to the point where I was afraid to go to sleep because the nightmares were so bad. So I was exhausted. And I had, at the time, my daughter was 11. And she was seeing mommy cry for the first time in her life. Like, mommy was a superhero to her. And now mommy's locked in the bedroom and, and can't stop crying. And it was horrible. And I started convincing myself that I was failing as a mother. Um, my daughter deserved better. 
I was a single mom. Her dad wasn't in the picture. And I just, the demons, I call them the demons. They, they got the best of me and were telling me that I was better off dead, that somebody else could do a better job. My, my daughter deserved better. You know, I didn't know depression could be physically painful. And I was hurting physically and mentally. And it just, I don't drink. I just don't. I, I wasn't self-medicating in any way. So I just, uh, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to pull myself out of this horrible dark hole that I was in. And I, I did. I planned my exit. And it was uh, a phone call I made to say goodbye on a voicemail to my best friend who was the world's worst at answering his telephone. And he answered that day. And I'm like, and I'm blessed that he did because he spent eight hours on the phone with me. He knew exactly what I was up to. He'd known me for 30 years and he talked some sense into me. And I started getting help on the down low, as they say, because I didn't trust my agency. And I think that's our biggest problem. I didn't trust my agency to do the right thing. I didn't trust them to ask for help. I didn't want to be hauled off to the local mental hospital, which was what I believed would happen. I'd been a critical incident uh, team member for, I'm sorry, crisis intervention team member for most of my career. I knew I had all the red flags. (laughs) And I mean, but I, so I'm even more so, I was terrified. I wouldn't even ask my best friend at the agency for help. I didn't trust anyone. So um, my veteran brothers were there for me. They pulled me out of it because they had walked in my shoes. They knew how to, to, to help me get out of the hole. And I went through therapy for about two years. And it wasn't until last year that I actually told my agency what I had been through, what I was doing, and they documented it in my record. But by that point, there was nothing they could do to me because I was already out of the darkness and doing better. And I had actually written my book, um, which was, I joke, I say it was a book by accident. It was actually my journal in therapy that I was later encouraged to publish because I was told it could help others who have, you know, are, are going through battling their same demons or similar demons. Is it safe to say that you're not the same person you are, uh, you were then and were you were before these incidents? You talking about 2017? Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I am, I am so much better. I am so much happier you know, do I have bad days? Of course I do. I'm not going to lie about it. But now I understand them. Now I know what my triggers are. See, before I didn't know my triggers. So when that when I got triggered and I lost my right, I'm trying not to curse, and I lost my and I, and I lost my temper, that volcano we talked about, then I felt guilty for, for exploding. Now I know what my triggers are and I can avoid them. Or if I do get triggered, I know to walk away because I can recognize it for what it is. And it's much easier to manage. So what I tell people is like, look, you, you may not cure it, but you learn how to manage it. And once you learn how to do that, and it is, you have to be taught, you have to learn, and each of us is different, then you are much better off. And a big and part of it, I'm safe to say, better- is that you've got to share the burden with someone else that's been there because they can help you through that. And you wound up writing this book, Courageously Broken. You said it was quite by accident. Tell us about the book and where people can get more information. Yeah, no, it, it was started as my journal in therapy and um, I was told it, it could help others. So I wrote the final chapters to it, asking myself if I could go back and teach myself something, what would it be? What What do I want people to walk away from this knowing that's been in my, you know, that are in my the shoes I was once in, that I was in. And that's what I did. And um, my my book is, is, is now become a mission, which is called Courageously Broken. On my website, there is a resources page where there are several retreats throughout the country, all funded by nonprofits. I never knew any of this existed before. Lots of first responders don't know how much help is actually 
already there, paid for, free for them. They just have to go on the websites and apply. And it's, everything is done discreetly, confidentially, where they can go with their brethren and with people who are specially trained to deal with first responders and veterans. Sorry. That can all be found on your website, correct? Yes, on my resources page. I believe it's under my mission tab. And what is um, your website address? It's courageouslybroken.com. Donna, I appreciate you so much you coming on the show. I appreciate your service, and, and thanks so much for sharing your story. We've got to have you back in the future. Oh, thank you so much. Check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. When you get there, click like and follow. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.